You're listening to Investigation Insiders by Integris Intelligence. Welcome, everyone, to our third episode. I can't believe it's been uh, three already. Uh, This is a lot harder than it looks in some ways, and I guess in some ways it's a a little bit better than what I thought it was going to be. Thank you all for uh, tuning in and your feedback so far. It's been very, very helpful. As we kind of been talking about, we are by no means the experts in putting together podcasts, so your feedback is really uh, vital. And Hopefully, we're able to continue improving on what we're doing and keep your interest. Speaking of which, I think we are going to get a lot of interest in today's episode. We are joined by a very, very special person who I want to properly introduce. Um, We've been fortunate throughout our careers uh, because there have been some incredible people like the man that's joining us today that have taken interest in our success and well-being. This is a man who's been there for us from day minus one, before we were uh, even thinking about going into business, before we ever became entrepreneurs. He's been there for us from the beginning and even before that. Uh, He provided us support, gave us uh, encouragement, provided guidance and where we needed it and just been a great friend. And this is the most incredible thing. He did it all without asking for a single thing. So we're joined uh, today by Bill Gavin. We need much more time than we have on this podcast to go through his life and career. But I want to give you some high-level highlights about who he is. Um, He was with the FBI for 28 years, where he retired as the assistant director of the New York office. We met sometime after uh, he left the FBI when we were both with Guardsmark, a national security firm. Um, After Guardsmark, Bill um, had his own firm, the Gavin Group, for many, many years. um, And he's been one of our senior advisors since we started. Uh, He gave us instant credibility. Simply put, we would not be where we are today without him. So thank you and welcome, Bill. Ahard, thanks so much for those kind comments. I'm, I'm sure that in some phases you'd be better off without me, but it, that is what it is. Um, I thought today maybe we'd, if, if you'd like to, we'd talk about uh, a couple of things in the Bureau that, that I was fortunate enough to work with some of the finest people in the FBI and in law enforcement in general uh, in, in some of the cases, one of them which was the uh, bombing of the World Trade Center in uh, 1993, the very first one uh, that ever occurred. It's the first time that the that the uh, terrorists put their big boots on this country, and it was a shock to all of us. The first bombing occurred in, on April, on uh, February 26, 1993, 12:16 p.m. I'll never forget it. I was in my office at 26 Federal Plaza when the bomb went off. Everybody initially thought it was. Uh, transformer, some electrical problem within the building, uh, but that uh, soon, very soon, uh, proved to be false. Uh, the bomb that went off caused uh, $100 million, $200 million worth of damage. It uh, killed six people. It injured 1,000 people, and it awoke uh, in all of law enforcement and the prosecutors uh, uh, a knowledge that we were vulnerable. 
Um, the individuals, there were seven individuals who uh, committed this uh, uh, atrocious act of, of terrorism upon the United States, um, a, a country, of course, that let them in and let them roam around freely within this wonderful republic of ours. Uh, and then they turn around and do something like this. Um, and they were from all over the, the um, uh, part of the Arab world. Um, Mohammed Salameh was from Jordan. Mahmoud Abu Hulima was from Egypt. Nidalayad was from Kuwait. Uh, Ama Ajaj was from Palestine. Ramzi Yusuf was from Iraq. Yaris Moyal was from Jordan. And Abdul Rahman Yassin was from Iraq. And so you can see that whole area, the whole terrorist area, uh, is represented uh, in this one bombing in 1993. Um, the when the bomb went off, uh, of course, everybody shot into action. And, and I think the most important thing about this bombing is to realize that for us to realize in law enforcement that while it's primarily the FBI's jurisdiction in this particular case, uh, there is no way the FBI tried to nor should have tried to go out and resolve this on our own. It was a commitment. This investigation was a commitment to the people of the United States that we are all in this together. And if we don't solve it, shame on all of us. And so the day of the bombing, we opened up the command center at uh, 26 Federal Plaza in the FBI uh, office there. And we had representatives from over 26 different agencies to include prosecutors and law enforcement agencies and gave everybody a say my commitment to everybody at that point was that nobody would be left in the in the in the shallows nobody would be left in the corner there would be no sidebar conversations where people were cut out of information and Bill, I made that on that on that note uh can you um so what was your role with the fbi at the time at the time i was a deputy assistant director of the fbi jim fox was the assistant director there and he uh, asked me, uh, kind of told me, this is yours, you've got to, you, it, it's yours to resolve this whole situation. And the way I looked at this whole thing was that um, as the head of the FBI part of the investigation, uh, I told people, I'm the band leader. I'm the leader of this orchestra. I don't play timpani. I don't play reed. I don't play horn. I don't play strings. I don't do any of this. I don't have the talent for that. But my job is to synthesize all the abilities of everybody in the room to do what they do best. And I told them I, would, I wouldn't let them down. I wouldn't try to upstage them. It wouldn't be FBI this, FBI that. It would be we as a task force working it. And quite frankly, uh, um, uh, it, it worked out just well. Uh, we got information from people, from law enforcement agencies that we very seldom uh, got information from. Uh, uh, they, they just sat down. They had a spot in the room. I provided them with uh, TVs, with computers, with telephones, and everybody went to work. And at, uh, at uh, 10 o'clock every morning and at 4 o'clock every afternoon, we had an update for everybody in the room and nobody was excluded. That's how it worked. Interesting. Um, so, do you, so do you remember uh, where you were at the time of the actual bombing? I was in my office at 26 Federal Plaza. Um, and how'd you hear about it? Like, did you hear it? Did you? What, what was the? What was that? That moment like? The, 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 it was. It was kind of a surreal uh, thing. 
you thought you heard maybe a, a thunder clap. And in 26 Federal Plaza is not that far away from 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 the yep. uh, Trade Center. And we thought I heard a thunderclap. I immediately got a phone call from from the from the uh, some of the squads saying they think there was an explosion and they think it was electrical in nature. And so we dispatched people right to the scene immediately. You know, the workers, the people who do the work, not the people who claim the glory. Uh, and they went down and and actually uh, uh, were able to report back the tragedy of what had happened. By that time, of course, the, uh, all of law enforcement, the NYPD, the fire department, the, the first responders, the uh, uh, everybody was involved in taking care of the immediate needs um, uh, before the actual investigation started. It was it was a real calamity. Um, Basically, the investigation unfolded with both talent from all the participants and, like any good investigation, a smidgen of good luck uh, uh, runs in here, too. Uh, what happened was they put the bomb of 5,000-pound AMFO, ammonia nitrate bomb, with uh, enhanced by uh, nitrogen hydrogen tanks and, and other uh, uh, explosive stuff in a rider rental van drove the van into uh, 1B, the basement of the, of the uh, World Trade Center, the North Tower, and, and detonated it. They reported the van stolen prior to um, the explosion, um, thinking that if they reported it stolen, you know, it wouldn't point to them, it would be, uh, uh, they were honest about it. Well, uh, they reported it stolen. After the bomb went off, uh, they contacted the, the individual, Mohammed Salameh from Jordan, contacted the uh, uh, rental agency in Jersey City saying that, you know, uh, uh, do I get any money back uh, because my van was, the van was stolen and I reported it. And of course, uh, by that time, we had determined through looking at uh, CVI, confidential VINs on the truck, that the truck was first sold. It, it had been a rider truck in Texas and brought up to Jersey City. We were able to trace it to the to the rental agency in Jersey City. So we knew that the portions, the pieces of the truck was a, with, a, with a bomb of that uh, of that uh, magnitude. And there wasn't much left of the truck, but we were lucky enough to to identify. it. So by the time he called back to say that, did he get any money back? We already knew that the truck. Uh, uh, where the truck was and who it was and what was involved. We told him, sure, come on in and get your money back. He came in to get $400 and there was the start of the arrests. Mm -hmm. um, um, Salome was arrested. Ajaj was, already in, one of, Ajaj was already in jail at the time, but all of these people started fitting into, into, into place. We, we were able to determine where they prepared the bomb, where they stored all the, all the uh, components for the bomb, uh, who was involved. And, and, and the, the primary people that, that got out of town immediately were Mahmoud Abu Halima, who was a, uh, who was a, um, a driver, uh, a limo driver in the city. He went, uh, to, he went immediately to Egypt. Ramzi Yusuf, who was the ringleader of this whole thing, left the same day. He, he went um, back in through uh, uh, um, Pakistan and on into Afghanistan and to regions where we couldn't reach him. Um, Abdul Rahman Yassin, 
is the only individual who's never caught in this uh, this whole adventure. Uh, he departed from New York two days after the bombing and went to Baghdad, and we never heard from him again. Um, it, it, it's, it's a little weird. Um, in, in doing all these things, uh, the, the, the investigation is complex. The investigation was tedious. It was time consuming. People, people that are involved in the city, uh, I'll, I'll never forget Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch gave us the basement of their building in which we could keep the evidence that we were constantly taking out of the trade center uh, wow. to examine. I mean, there would people would just rolled over and did the right thing. It was, you know, you can talk about New York being heartless and cruel and all. It isn't. They're mushy. They are terrific folks, and they'll do whatever they can. Just don't portray them as being mushy. That's all they ask. Especially if you're from Massachusetts. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It, it, don't say don't say Yankees and don't say Red Sox. That's the only thing they ask. You, you got it. Well, you know, that's all like, again, all of this is just just fascinating. Um, as as uh, we were talking about beforehand, one of one of um, one of the things about this particular podcast is the name in, uh, Investigation Insiders. And one of the things that we were hoping to do with you today was obviously there's a ton of information out there about the incident, about what happened, about the investigation, about the people that were involved. What we were hoping today um, was that you could maybe talk a little bit about some of the things that a lot of people don't know about that happened during the course of the investigation, during the course of the arrest, and your involvement and some of your thoughts on that, if, if you wouldn't mind talking about that. I'd love to. The investigation is what it is. And as you say, there's a lot that is known about it and a lot that's not. The, 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 the nitty gritty of how things are done or maybe some incidents that occurred. Uh, there's a couple of things that, that come to mind that, that, that really aren't out there on the, on the uh, uh, focus of everybody. And, and one was the arrest of uh, Mahmoud Abu Halima in Egypt. Um, when we found out who he was and where he went, we got in touch with Hassan Mubarak, who was the leader of Egypt at the time. And uh, he, he assured us that he would find Mahmoud and turn him over to us. But he was at the Hajj at that particular point. When he came back in country, he would be arrested and we would be notified. Well, he did notify us. He called us and the logistics are going over there. And uh, one of our um, uh, fellow agencies, an intelligence agency, provided a plane and flew the head of my SWAT team, myself, uh, a first office agent and a detective from NYPD, which caused a little concern with the FBI headquarters itself. But I said, two people know more about Mahmoud Al-Hulima than anybody else. It's a first office agent and the detective from the PD, and they're going. So I brought them on this plane. And uh, we went from we went from Islip, Long Island, over to uh, Northern Europe, and and then from there to uh, to uh, Cairo. We landed at Cairo. We never get off the plane. Well, we got off the plane just to stretch at the base of the stairs. They put our plane, which was a G4, um, a Gulfstream 4, in between some Air Iraqi jets, which was a little uncomfortable. But they put us over there. And within 
15 minutes, this gray limousine um, uh, Mercedes kept going around at about 80, 90 miles an hour, coming by the row of planes and going away again and coming back. We decided maybe it'd be a good time to get back into our plane. So we went back into the plane. The car eventually stopped at the base of the stairs. Uh, one of the uh, Egyptian, um, well, they almost looked like thugs, uh, came up the stairs, looked around inside the plane, went back down, got in the car and brought Mahmoud Abu Halima into the plane. Um, unrecognizable. His head was all bandaged like you'd see a mummy in, in some of the sarcophagi. They, he only had a slit for a mouth and two, two uh, holes for a nose, no eyes, no ears. Um, he had plastic cuffs on uh, that had already gone through the skin to the bone. Um, it, was, it was a horror show. But he came in, we were able to cut the, the dressing off his head, the, the bandages off his head, and release his hands from the cuffs. Um, uh, as you can well imagine, uh, hadn't been bathed, uh, no, uh, no human dignity had been extended to him. What we found out on the trip back was that they had um, stripped him down, put him on a spit, rotated him on that spit, and burnt every inch of his body with cigarettes and lighters. Uh, it, was, it was horrifying. Uh, can, can, you, agent, uh, can you expand on that just a little bit? What, what do you think the, the motivation, what, why did they do that? What, what was their motivation for doing that? Their motivation is he is an Egyptian citizen. We are taking a chance at this rendition, if that's what we want to call it. Uh, we're taking a chance at it, but we want to know what he knows, and we're going to make him tell us what he <laughs> their form of interrogation is a tad different than ours, I might say. And, sure, and sure. so they tried to get him to tell them everything. Whether he did or he didn't, we don't know. We don't know to this day. Uh, no, that was going to be my follow-up question is, uh, do you know what they got out of him? But I guess we don't know the answer to that. We don't know the answer to that. And they are not exactly forthcoming on <laughs> what they got or how they got it. Uh, when we got him back, uh, flew him back into the United States, interviewed all the way back across the uh, pond by the by the detective and, and the first office agent. And and when we got to the uh, when we got to the states, uh, uh, usually you bring him into the office, photograph him, fingerprint him. I said, this is beyond beyond the ne necessary thing to be done. Get him to the hospital. Get the cameras and the and the photograph the people up there. And we knew done right well. Anything we got in the plane was ours. The minute we hit the, the ground, he's going to get lawyered up and, you know, we're not going to get anything else out of him. But that's the risk you take and the humanitarian thing that you had to do. And that, that's all it was to it. So that's that's how uh, Mahmoud came back into the United States. Um, so he was about six you, foot two, redheaded, freckle faced Egyptian. So he wasn't too hard to identify. <laughs> I was going to ask about the 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 mood on the plane ride there and the mood on the plane ride back were were you and the others that were there with you was it just a surreal experience were you too seasoned to really uh have a, a i guess uh, uh an energy rush from can you talk a little bit about the mood uh going there and coming back was it any different did it feel the same and then what was it like when you got him in possession and knew that you, you got the guy? That's an excellent question, Fahad. You know, 
there's a couple of things that happen in these cases. When you look at this from the outside looking in, like you're watching a movie, you get the rush and the thrill. When you're in the middle of it, that doesn't exist. Mm. It's it's not nervousness. It's nothing. I got a job to do here. You tried to get some sleep on the way over if you could, because it's a it's a good haul. And and we did get a couple of hours sleep. There's no sleep on the way back. That's impossible. Sure. But it's while you're in the while you're in the plane, while you're worth that person, you're right. The the find the idea he is in custody. That's one more down and two more to go. Um it, it it's a great relief to have another one in custody. Uh it but it's it, it's it's like a normal normal is not a good word it's it's not something you say wow this is great look at all the adventure it's not that doesn't go on you're just there to do a job and while it sounds a little unmelodramatic it is i mean that's the way it is and 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 you you move on that way my job or my uh what motivated me to do that myself rather than to dedicate somebody else to do it was when somebody gets taken a hostage, they want the main person. And that main person is also the person who could prevent hostages from being taken. So I think that was my job to protect the people that were actually doing the job. Sure. I didn't do the job myself. The 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 agent and the detective did the job. But my job is to protect them. And that's that's the reason I went that, no, for no other reason. And sometimes that's hard to convince people. But, you know, that is what it is. I don't does that doesn't bother me much. Sure. Sure. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that that's a great uh, that's a great um, story. And um, and how I guess uh, how talkative uh, was he on the plane? He not a lot. Uh, he he. He would have confessed to the crucifixion if that's what you asked him to do, I think. And that's why we were a little um, hesitant to push it too far because, you know, it would be thrown out anyway. But we did get we did get some good information from him as to uh, his involvement at the time. He was more than willing to tell us that just to get back to the United States and out of that plane and into a hospital someplace. So that was helpful. Um, The other thing that that. I wanted to talk about just a little is the second trip abroad, and that was to Islamabad. Um, that was a, a, a little uh, different. Um, uh, the the theatrics of that one was were, were just amazing. When we found out Ramzi Yusuf after after he left the United States on on the 26th of February 93. He didn't stay still someplace. He was an he was an awful awful kid. Uh, he was only like 29 years old. Uh, you know, uh, as I said, uh, he's uh, he's from Iraq, but he was educated in the UK, and and he spoke English very well. He um he was the uh, the nephew of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, right. which we later found out, and and so when we went to get when he left. He he did a number of different things. He 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 after the bombing he went to uh, the Philippines. He plotted to kill the president of the United States on his visit to the Philippines. He plotted to kill the Pope when the Pope visited the Philippines. But he developed this program called Bojinka Plot, where he was going to bring down ten to twelve U.S. airline carriers 
coming from the Orient, coming from Japan primarily uh, to the United States, all within a 24-hour period. And he he uh, developed a program to do just that. And there's a whole that's a whole other story. But what I wanted to talk about basically was when he finally left the Philippines because he blew the side out of the building that he was <laughs> preparing the bombs in. He went back to um, uh, to Islamabad and was going to go back into uh, Afghanistan again. And what we did is we we did a lot of work there. But one of the things we did is we prepared matchbooks because everybody everybody smokes. Everybody mm -hmm. smokes. So we prepared these matchbooks uh, with not just the regular 20 matches, but the 40 in them, the big ones. And we put his picture yeah. on it. We we did it for him, and we did it for Abdul Rahman Yassin, and we offered a two million dollar reward. And uh, somehow those fell out of a plane all over the area just to get everybody's attention. And um, sure. when you know he was in um, uh, Islamabad uh, and got identified. When he got identified, he got arrested, and then we decided we had to go over and pick him up and bring him back. Uh, Again, theatrics. We had a, a 707, Air Force provided a 707, one of the big gray planes. And if you can recall, that was one of the basic carriers transport planes in the United States, the 707 and the DC-8 were the two big monsters that carried people in, in, in uh, travel. But this was a big gray one that was painted white in like 36 hours. <laughs> and, uh, uh, prepared to go overseas. Uh, we took the hostage rescue team members, six members of the hostage rescue team. Again, we took a, the, the same agent that uh, that interviewed um, Mahmoud Halima. again, was one of the, was the kid who, a young guy, you know, first, first out of his age, and he had about three years in, but he knew what he was doing and he understood all these people. And the second person we took to do the interview was a secret service agent of about equal tenure, who was just a super kid and, and an interviewer. So we took those two people as the main people to interview Ramzi Yusuf on the way back from to the United States uh, when we picked him up. Uh, we had three flight crews on board the plane. And you can well imagine there's no seats in this plane. They're kind of like uh, um, hammocks slung. We sit, lay down. Uh, uh, water, you'd have to have plenty of water on a trip like that because you get dehydrated. Water yeah. food was stored right in the belly of the plane, but you just, as you walk down the aisle of the plane, you just to open the trap door and walk down into the belly. This was not a sophisticated operation. We, we right. prepared an interview room out of uh, tarps in the plane. In any event, we take off uh, out of Dulles Airport. Um, and with a plane this size, you can't totally fuel it because the wings are going to hit the ground. So it takes off. And then we take on two tankers full of fuel uh, from McGuire Air Force Base. Now, I don't know how many people have ever been in a plane that's refueled in the air. Um, but it, it's, you know, you see it on television and it's exciting. It's wonderful. I have. Yeah. I, I'll tell you what, when you're in it, it's not exciting. It's, it's horrible. It's a horror show. Your plane is jumping all over the place. You are coming yeah. up underneath the belly of the tanker. 
your plane is a pretty good sized plane. Right. The, the, the connector from the, from the tanker to your plane is about 20 feet long. You got to come within 20 feet. You get look up and there's a kid up there that they just took out of a video store someplace, I think, <laughs> who's trying to fly that boom into your plane to refuel you. Your plane is jumping all over the place. It's going up and down. The conversation between the cockpits of the two planes is anything but church talk. But it goes on. We took on two, two uh, tankers full of fuel out of McGuire Air Force Base, and we went to Cairo. In Cairo, we refueled again and then went to Islamabad. We never left the um, uh, tarmac uh, in Islamabad. When we got there, they brought Ramzi Yusuf out to the airport. Um, of course, he's all in the orange jumpsuit and whatnot. We finally got Ram, uh, Ramzi Yusuf on the plane, and we had made the decision that going back to the United States, uh, we could not stop anywhere because mm -hmm. the 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 world is such that if you stop someplace who decides, well, this is the United States and they have the death penalty, they're going to kill these people. We don't have that. We're not going to let them go into their death and all that, oh, that wow. kind of esoteric nonsense. And so we decided we were going to have to go nonstop. Um, that 707 does not make it nonstop across the sea. Oh, no. This is a bunch of refuelings, it sounds like. Two out of Diego Garcia, two out of Mendenhall, and two out of Rota, Spain. <laughs> um, <laughs> by the time that was through, I had decided that uh, I'd had all the fun I could take of uh, refueling in the air. But. <laughs> Well, hopefully you it, it, it was motion sickness medicine before you got on that flight. <laughs> no, I wasn't smart enough to think of that. But <laughs> in, in any event, the good thing that happened during the flight is the two the two people of the Secret Service agent and the um, the Secret Service agent, by the way, eventually became the head of Secret Service in New York, uh, Brian mm -hmm. Parr. Um, the, the, these two people interviewed Ramsey and got him to tell them a lot of information. As a matter of fact, he wrote something down. <laughs> they looked at it and uh, they got the information on and then he said, oh, I shouldn't have written that down. And he picked a piece of paper up and, and chewed it up and swallowed it. Um, it, it <laughs> things oh, that you don't read, read about in the reports. Um, wow. uh, but on the, on the way back, they, they did what they had to do. Um, the, the problem that we had is occurred in Rota, Spain, when we took on the last um, uh, uh, tanker full of fuel. We were having a heck of a time uh, hooking up. The, the weather was a little uh, jumpy, and the mm -hmm. plane, of course, was jumpy. And uh, it took us almost a half an hour to take on that last tanker. We didn't want to let it go because we would have had to land in Iceland again. And we don't want to land any place but the United States. The other thing is, when we come back to the United States, because of our own rules and regulations and laws and governances, we had to land in the southern district of new york we mm. couldn't land at laguardia we couldn't land at kennedy because we would have had to have an, a hearing to bring them back into new york city which was the southern district so we went uh we went up the road a bit and um and uh, uh landed in uh in new york and they sent the 
the uh, uh, when we landed, we we uh, it was it was it was night, and so they they sent a helicopter out to pick us all up, and and that was that was another flight because we sat in the helicopter. Ronzi Yusuf was sitting beside me, and the two agents that had interviewed him all the way over were sitting across from me. And Ronzi, of course, had a hood over his head and the orange jumpsuit on. And as yeah. we came down, as we came down the river, uh, uh, the Hudson, you look down. It was February uh, again, and it was it was cold, but New York City was lit up like a jewel on a tree. It was just absolutely gorgeous. Right. And and as I get to we get to the Empire State Building, I pull a, a shroud off this uh, Ramsey Yusuf's head, and I say to him, "Look straight out the window, Ramsey." See that? It's the Trade Center and it's still standing. And this <laughs> this fool says it wouldn't be if I had enough money and enough explosives. Wow. Um, wow. So the two agents immediately sat up straight. I said, you might want to jot that down so he can hear that again sometime. And it was one of the one of the main uh, parts of the testimony as to his guiltiness in, in the in the trial. But wow. those are the things that don't come out during the course of these uh, uh, these investigative uh, endeavors, and, and particularly in big cases, there's so many small things that occur that you overlook. And again, as you said, it's not like the thrill of, you know, you're not nervous and all that. It's just part of life. It's what you do. You think about it later on, but it's yeah. not something that gets you, that gets your juices flowing and makes you, uh, makes you act maybe a, a little irrationally at times. It was, uh, yeah. It was it was just one of those things that was that was great. And then the trial, of course, was was um, uh, was just a thrill to uh, to have them convicted and each yeah, one of yeah. them sentenced to by Kevin Duffy, uh, who was a who was a, uh, <coughs> a figure in himself who just passed away not too long ago. Um, he uh, he sentenced him each to 240 years in federal prison, and he uh, he did it all based on the life expectancy of the six people that would have uh, that, right, that died. That. He did it did it, he factored in a lot of different things, the laws, all the different counts and stuff. And it's 240 years, and and they're all serving their terms at uh, at uh, Supermax uh, in uh, Pueblo, Colorado, and uh, they're 23 hours a day in a cell, and then when they let them out to exercise, they're in a yard with walls so high they can't see over the walls they don't know where a mountain is they don't know where a tree is they can only see a sky and that's the way their life is going to be until their life is over that's that's incredible um you know something i want to just go back to on that part of uh uh i guess uh your story is um with regard to flying straight back without landing, right? I guess just to clarify what, what you're saying is, like if you, if you stopped in a certain place, they might have some rules where they say, you know what, uh, we need to uh, take this guy into custody or something. And that's what the concern was, right? That is what the concern was. And it's, it's not so much that they think it's the jurisdiction, it's that the United States has uh, uh, the, uh, the the capital penalties, you know, the, the, do put people to death. And that is so opposed to some of the countries that we didn't want to take any kind of a chance uh, of, of having that happen. Where we went through all of this and then lost our prisoner to, uh, uh, to uh, I'm, I'm sure I don't make fun of them. It's just that it's not our way of doing business and we ought to, we ought to do everything we can to keep it uh, according to our way to do business. 
Sure, sure. And then just from a planning perspective, right? So obviously you all get a call saying that uh, they have them. How, how much planning, like, is it a ton of planning or is it something that just, you know, you were prepared, uh, the Bureau and uh, the other agencies were prepared and you just move into action? Or was there a lot of red tape and other things that you had to go through at the time? And how much from the time you knew that he was in possession to the time you were on the ground? What was that time frame? How, how long? Um, I want to say, I, I can't tell you exactly. I want to say it was in the vicinity of three days. Okay. We did a lot of pre-planning. That yeah, always yeah. helps. Uh, pre-planning is, is, is the key to success. To open all the, the, uh, the communication skills uh, to get to the Air Force. If we could get him, what could you do for us? Those kinds of things. Sure. What, sure. what is the State Department going to do for us? And the State Department was very helpful in this particular case. Sometimes they're not. They are very helpful in this case. Um, what is the agency going to do for us? All of those things have to be coordinated and tied together ahead of time so that you don't go rumbling around, do something uh, that you probably ought not to do. I don't mean in terms of legality, but in terms of pre-planning. So yeah. we do all that stuff ahead of time, and then sure, you just sure. have to start pushing the buttons and update the information that you need. But all of the, all of the ability to go into uh, Islamabad in a plane like that under those set of circumstances has to be prepared by state, by uh, a lot of different entities in order to make it work. Um, and and yeah. you, really, you really have to, you really have to um, uh, be cognizant of uh, everybody's sensitivities and things like this. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, as I'm listening to you, um, I guess it's very much like a family, right? Uh, where a tragedy, you know, you mentioned the NYPD, you mentioned um, the uh, Secret Service, the agency, uh, all, all these different organizations. It's amazing how a tragedy uh, manages to uh, bring people together and show how resilient uh, we really are as Americans. It, it really does. I mean, a, a case such as this type will, will make all the bias against uh, that occurs within organizations it will make it disappear. Sometimes you get a little gl glitch, but the but the the dynamics and the and the personalities and the character of the people who are responsible for both running and doing the real work of these agencies uh, comes to light uh, every single time. It's it's just sure. it's 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 a it's a wonderful thing. It was it was really wonderful. Sure, sure. So I guess. Uh, fast forward uh, to September 11th, um, having experienced the first bombing, um, what were your thoughts when you first heard, uh, when you heard about the first plane crashing or, you know, just if you could walk us through that a little bit, uh, having played such an uh, intricate role in the first investigation? Um, interesting. When I... I know exactly where I was. I was at um, uh, Newton at the Boston Office of Guardsmark uh, mm -hmm. when this uh, when it occurred at, uh, on 9/11. Um, we got the word, and I had a television in the office. And we got the word that that a, some small plane had hit a tower or something. Turned on the news and was able to see live the second plane hitting the tower. And I and I 
said to myself, they're at it again. And and um, I think it, it, it was disgusting to me and put a lump in my throat and a, and a pain in my heart because I it was going to be so much worse than the first one. The first one they intended to to blow up one tower and drop it into the other, and of course they didn't know what they were doing. But behind that, Osama bin Laden. Um, Think of where he came from and what his family did. They were all construction people. Sure. When they, when this first thing happened, they knew they had done it wrong, and they were going to plan the next time to do it right. And and when I when I saw that plane hit, I said they have been successful. Didn't know who it was uh, at that time. It turned out to be correct, but it right. it was just it was just a horrible tragedy that that you said why could this not have been prevented but it wasn't and then when we go back and we start to look at the training and the and the where these people went to school to learn to fly we taught them how to fly our planes into our buildings it was just yeah. a, it was catastrophic it was tragic yeah no i i mean absolutely the uh, and so i i guess many years later uh, tell me how how all of these how how does the first bombing how September 11th how how does it impact you to this day how how do you feel about it when you think about it do you still does it take you back to those times um, talk a little bit about that if you wouldn't mind both I think probably more the 93 bombing because of I was in the middle of it, um, it you you never get over. You always remember the details. I mean, knowing the full names of, of all these people and, and where they're from and what they did, you, you don't get over that those kinds of things. Um, uh, and, and, and I think that what we, what we forget sometimes is after this February 1993 bombing, within months, they were planning to bomb the two tunnels, Holland Lincoln, the garage of the United Nations and 26 Federal Plaza. And we had another case going at the same time whereby we went into a, the bomb making factory in the Queen, in Queens, New York, and stopped that from happening. It was just so many things happening at the same time. So all those things stick inside you. You remember meetings with, with uh, people who's, who, who were boots on the ground, the, the agents and the police officers and who were actually doing the work, sitting in your office at one o'clock in the morning, sure. giving you a brief. Those are the kinds of things that stick in your heart. And then when then on 9-11, on of course, removed by that time, I retired in 95. But I just, I think about that and it, and it breaks my heart because I don't know if it could have been avoided uh, I guess everything can be avoided with all the right uh, moves, but this was just a horrible tragedy for all those innocent souls who have lost their lives and the impact it's had on all their families. Um, you think about that frequently, and I've been to the site in in Lower Manhattan yeah. on a number of occasions on the anniversaries, and it's 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 uh, it's not an easy thing to do, and and sure. you still you still get a lump in your throat over things like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Being uh, having grown up in New York and uh, been through both of those incidents, I know exactly what you're talking about, and and it never really leaves you. I, I really, first of all, um, we we could sit 
here literally all day. Uh, anyone that knows Bill knows that um, he's 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 had a full life and has a lot of very very interesting um, stories that he can tell. And hopefully we'll have him back again in the future. But Bill, I want to thank you for a few things, if you wouldn't mind. Um, first, I want to thank you for your service to our country. Um, second, I want to thank you for everything that you've done for Integris uh, Intelligence. Third, everything that you've done for us personally. And lastly, um, thanks for joining us today. Um, when you discussed, what you discussed with us today is really part of history. It needs to be heard. And we are so fortunate to have it told on our platform directly from you. Um, so, Bill, I've been ending each uh, podcast with some takeaways. Today is simple. Um, the takeaway is that Bill Gavin is incredible. So thank you. Anything you want to uh, leave our audience with? I just want to say thank you to, to you, uh, to Joe, to Tony, to everybody at Integris. Uh, you're doing the right thing at the right point in time and you're taking time to make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And that's so darned important in this day and age where people just slough things off and run through uh, the daily routine without really thinking of the consequences. So it is my pleasure uh, to do whatever I can do uh, to, to uh, uh, show what Integris is and how they can best help anybody else. Um, it's 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 indeed my pleasure every single day. Uh, I thank God that I've been associated with the two of you, with all of you guys at Integris Intelligence. Well, th thank you so much, Bill. I mean, it just doesn't stop. He's he's. This is a man that's just on our side, and we are just so incredibly lucky. Um, so thank you all again for uh, joining us. Please uh, subscribe and or send comments to us. We want to hear from you. We want to find out how to um, uh, you know, improve. And you can find out about how to reach out to us in the um, description section of the podcast. So thank you again. Thank you, Bill. Uh, till next time. My pleasure. Don't forget to follow Integris Intelligence on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter.